Thank you. You may be seated. Anybody else very, very, very thankful that we have kids and students in our church family? Please don't take that for granted. Please don't think that's just a normal thing. We are so thankful uh, for the kids and students in the room that are in kids' ministry, sprinkled around the building. But one of the things we've been talking about is we don't want our students just in the services. We want them a part of our services. We want them serving, leading, being involved. But the second thing we've been talking about is we need more people to not just be thankful that we have kids in the room, but to invest in the kids in the room. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but the world is kind of a crazy place to be a kid right now. Is that just me? Has anybody else noticed that? Uh, the world has lost its ever-loving mind, and it's intense for the kids right now. Uh, and so there should be no spectators when it comes to our children in the church. Uh, maybe you don't know the kids, go find out their parents. You don't know the teenager, go find out their parents. I can tell you one thing about the parents. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Amen? If you've been a parent, you know this. Uh, you were in the cockpit of the plane flying blindfolded. And so anybody who comes along with a prayer, a word of encouragement, a hug, uh, I'll, I'll watch your kids for a night, go out for a few minutes, like anything you can do to invest in other families— Please don't be a spectator of the, of the young families and kids in our church. We need you to be praying and investing deeply in our students. Uh, that's, def- that's a free sermon before the other sermon. Uh, you heard the passage read, and you heard it read very, very well. Um, there are times when I hear a passage like that that has like a list of things to do. I mean, we said last week that James feels like Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount kind of collided together. And you hear all these things, do, do, don't do, remember this, walk the, like, you hear it all as a list of things. And it's tempting to jump into the list. And I would just encourage you to pause. When you come to this passage, 19 through 27, all these quick instructions, pause and step back from the passage. This week as I looked at it, I just needed to be reminded with a simple, simple question to ask myself, God, what are you up to? I don't know if you ask that question very often. I don't mean like in my life specifically, why aren't you doing something? I don't mean that. But like, God, what are you up to? What's what's on your mind? What are you doing? What are you involved in? Kind of where's your heart these days? And I stepped back this week and just kind of asked myself afresh and new, God, what are you up to? Like, why does this passage matter? Why is doing this? Why is it important? All the stuff that we, what what are you up to? And I I came across a C.S. Lewis quote, and I mean, you can't come to church out here in a C.S. Lewis quote. So uh, I read the C.S. Lewis quote where he said it so succinctly. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, the clergy, the missions, the sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Do you hear the weight in that? Like all the activities, all the praying for students, all the mission trips, Love Atlantic, all the stuff we do, all the instructions from James, if it's not shaping people to be more like Jesus, it's just noise. Does that land? 
And what we said last week, Scott McKnight had a little quote I shared with you last week, that James is instructing us, leading us, to live the Jesus life in a Jesus-less culture. When, when you bump into a passage that has a whole bunch of like do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts, it can be quick for the students in the room to grab their notepad, grab their pen, and start writing out all the instructions. Pause, step back. God, what are you doing in this passage? James is writing to discouraged Christians in trials scattered across the area. James, through what God is saying to him, is forming communities in the likeness of Christ. That's what he's up to. If you ask the question, God, what are you up to? He is forming communities of little Christ. People who look, talk, sound, not mimicking, they are actually being transformed into Jesus' likeness. I, I need that reminder. Because as I read through James, and as I, even as I hear it read, I'm also struck with how little James has to say about Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed that before? Jerusalem, the pressure they placed on the Christians is why they're scattered. And he almost says nothing about Jerusalem. Like, he almost says nothing about the trial that he says. Like, he says last week, you know, blessed are those who count it and consider it joy when they go through various trials. But he doesn't say much about the trials that Jerusalem is inflicting on the Christians. Read Paul later. Read and, and look at how little Paul has to say about what the Romans are up to. Read Peter. When you read 1 Peter, he is encouraging them because the city burned, Nero blamed the Christians, and Paul said, or Peter says almost nothing of the situation that they're in, but just speaks to them like Paul does, like James does, of here's how we function in the face of opposition, not let's yell at the opposition. Somebody say it's a good word. You're not even sure what I'm talking about, are you? Most of the Western church and Western Christianity spends most of their life just yelling at how broken the world is. Please notice how little of the time our spiritual fathers rail about out there and how much diligent and grace and love they implore shaping in here. Meaning... It's not that we don't go and live helping usher in the kingdom of heaven. It's just that we don't get obsessed with our trials. We get focused on what Christ is doing in us while we are in a trial. Am I warm yet? Anybody in a trial? It will be tempting to obsess about the trial which is not in your control. What we get to do is be invited into what God is up to in your life while you're in a trial. Now are we warm? And so you come to James and he says things like, you know, be slow to get angry and be slow to speak and quick to listen. He's giving all this instruction. Don't get lost in all the instruction. I mean, you should read it. You should be diligent. But when I stepped back and look at the passage, like, James, what are you saying and all the things that you're saying? I had three themes come to mind. Three themes kept bubbling up amidst all the instruction. The instruction is simple. There's nothing in there that needs great explanation, but I think there's a, a relevant word to be shared. Why all the instruction? 
The first thing I see in the passage, a theme that's bubbling up in here, is that James expects Jesus' people to respond, not react. And we are world-class reactors. Yes? Yes. This kid has a bright future because that kid is honest. The rest of you can put smoke and mirrors up all you want. That kid knows what's going on. James expects us to respond, not react. But everything in your flesh will want you to react and not respond. And so he says, you know, be slow, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, slow to get angry. I sat there and was like, well, I don't need to go any further. (laughs) I'm terrible at that. How many of you got angry about having to drink the air this morning? Anybody like 500% humidity? Anybody like sleeping in a bed that feels like you're draped in saran wrap? Does that warm your heart? I woke up cranky, but that's most of the days. But like, when you, you know what I'm saying. There's so much going on in this world that will beg you to react. Your flesh will want to react. And Jesus calls us through James to respond. The issue with reacting is that we find quickly in our life greater pressures lead to greater, sorry, greater pressures lead to quicker reactions. Have you noticed that the more pressure you feel on you, the faster your mouth opens and words come flying out? So James writing to people who are in a trial, who are scattered across the areas like, I should pastor them because I know the more pressure they feel, the more tempted they will be to open their mouth and words will fly out. Some of you, when you go home and your spouse opens their mouth and flies words at you, sometimes it's you. Sometimes it's not. It's pressure. The more pressure we feel, it has to release somewhere. And so the more pressure we're under, our mouth opens and engages and the foot goes in rapidly. And James is calling for people to slow down and respond. And to respond, that requires listening. Responding requires pondering. Responding requires humbling yourself to say, I'm not going to react. I'm listening. I'm hearing. I'm taking this on. And then I'm going to sit with it and let the pressure subside. Some of you know you have written emails in anger and it just threw logs on the fire. Some of you know you've gotten an argument and the more they upped the ante, you saw their 10 and raised them 20. And it got worse and worse and worse, didn't it? Sometimes more words doesn't help anything. What we need is to slow down and humble ourselves, and be quiet for a moment. The second pressure working against us, this is my favorite point of the whole sermon, increased noise builds a, a low-grade irritation in all of us. Increased noise builds a low-grade irritation in all of us. Some of you think you're just cranky by nature. You're not. I need to release you from that pressure. It's the never-ending noise in your life that has sucked the grace out, sucked your tanks dry, and you are irritable, not because of your wiring, but because nobody will shut up. Sorry, that's online, isn't it? (laughs) Can we be honest in church? Some of you are irritable by choice. 
That phone, that phone that you have is meant to work for you, not you to work for it. And I am telling you, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm telling you, my phone was living in my pocket most of my waking hours. Yes? Come on, don't lie. Some of you so boast like, not mine. May I see your Apple Watch on your wrist, please? (laughs) Yeah. I am telling you, it's warping you. I've been practicing not carrying my phone with me, and I'm experiencing ghost vibrations. Anybody ever experienced this? If you had, it means you're not putting your phone far enough away. I text Tom this week, and I was in a hurry because that's how I live my life, and I wanted an immediate response. And I was doing something, I felt my phone vibrate. I was like, sweet, nothing on the screen. That happens 12 times a week because I carry my phone, was carrying my phone all the time, and the, I can hear my phone vibrate on the counter from upstairs in the bedroom. We, we have a version of this. The kids just always buzzing at your feet. I came home on Friday and the kids were running around the kitchen. Julia was baking bread for something and had desserts on the go and the bread maker was making noise and three kids tend to make noise going on and on and on. And I came home and was like, I should put some music on. I thought that was the end of our marriage. <laughs> because you and I know that low-grade noise depletes you. And you don't realize you are reacting at a perpetual state of emptiness. And empty people are irritable. Especially the moms in the room. Can I say something to you? I know you love your kids. I I perceive. (laughs) I'll assume. The best thing you can do, and dads, you need to help with this. Moms, with all the love and grace I can say this, go away. (laughs) I don't care where you go, you just can't stay here. Leave. 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 (laughs) Nobody be mentored by that guy. (laughs) Moms, you need a sanctified break. Go away. Go sit by the water. Go walk on the beach. But please, please don't do it unless you're prepared to leave your devices on the counter. Don't substitute the noise of your kids for the noise of scrolling while you're in isolation. I'm begging of you. Some of you are at your end by choice because it's noise all the time, and when you get a minute of quietness, you bring noise into your head. Please, for the love of God, stop. Now, if you're a single parent in the room, you're like, that's nice. Call the church. We'll figure something out. You need a break. The best way to love your kids is to go away from time to time. Let your heavenly Father minister to you, speak to you, heal you, give you rest. You need this. Am I right? Please love your kids well by vacating from time to time. The world is too stinking noisy, and we don't just need a break from social media. We need a break from everything and all devices. I could say more, but I'll stop for now. The third thing pulling against us to react and not respond is that immediate reactions are killing us. Like we are literally cannibalizing ourselves with our instant reactions. 
So what happens is you get a message and you feel your blood boiling and you just start typing back in a hurry. You sit down with an employee or a boss or whatever and they say something, your blood pressure goes up and you just start spouting. I just need you to know you are not obligated to react in any situation. There's never a time ever, ever, ever where you can't say, may I have a minute? Can I take what you've said to me and can I walk away for an hour, chew on this, and bring it back to you? Devices specifically, we are like literally just shredding friends and family digitally. You have received an offensive message and you pulled your fingers out and just started writing back only after you took a screenshot and fired it to all your people to build the army to embolden you or something for more insanity. And then you just started writing to blast them back. Stop it. I'm going to break some of your brains. It's plausible that what you took as an offensive message was actually not offensive. You were just having a garbage day. And you read tones and inflections an attitude that wasn't there. With all the love and grace that I have for you, do you believe I love you? Get off your self-righteous high horse. <laughs> Sit down. Like, what if I misunderstood? What if that was a joke? What if, what if? <sighs> Here's what I'm going to do going forward. I've been teasing the staff about this. I know hashtags aren't a thing anymore, but I'm going to bring back the phone call. I'm going to bring back the phone call. If you text me, don't be shocked if I phone you back like your 74-year-old father. Because we spend so much time writing back and forth, misunderstanding, hurting feelings, or everyone's favorite, when they don't respond instantly, well, they're mad at me. I haven't heard from them in like six minutes. And phones are wonderfully helpful, but they're making you needy and paranoid little children. And we need to distance ourselves. So when someone texts, pick up the phone, like, ring, ring, hello. <laughs> do you know what else you could do when you think you may have misunderstood something? I, this is going to, I mean, this is, this, is, this is insane advice. You could drive to someone's house and go, and knock on their door and say, good afternoon, good afternoon, may I come in? No, it's a bad time. Okay, chat later. <laughs> or you might find they might say, come on in, the coffee's on. Do you remember when we used to be a community before the blip? Do you remember that? We used to speak to people like they were humans, not positional positions opposing us. So can I stop now for a minute? <laughs> James is calling us to humanize each other. James is calling us to be transformationally rewired for how we speak and how we act and how we react with people that we know that we love. To slow down, to walk away, come back, say, let's chat soon. And putting all the silliness away, being slow to speak or slow to type. I'll get off this one or I'll never finish the sermon. The second thing I see James as a theme pulling on us is that James believes that Jesus' people pursue whole faith. 
I'm not sure we've done ourselves a lot of favors by saying things like, we invite Jesus into my heart. I get it. It's helpful. It's not even unbiblical, but we have this idea that Jesus saves my heart and someday I'll go to heaven when I die. But if you read that passage again this afternoon, read how much anatomy is involved in the passage. I plucked it out real quick. Your ears should be open. Your mouth should move slowly. Your emotions should be in check. Put away wicked behavior. Your soul is saved. Your eyes should look into the law of liberty. And your feet should move to go visit orphans and widows. Jesus might save your heart, but he wants to mobilize your entire body. People who receive Jesus fully should receive him fully. That means when you hear a message go in your ear, it's meant to be connected to your hand. When you hear the scriptures, when you hear the voice of Jesus, it's meant to go from your ear to your left and right foot. It's meant to go to the soul. It's meant to go to the mind. When Jesus saves, he saves fully. Jesus cares about your right hand, your left eye. He cares about all of it. And so this idea of, you know, like, I, I'm more heady. I like to study and to know things. Well, that's fine, but your hands better move. Well, I love just kind of serving Jesus and being hands-on, getting dirt under my fingernails. That's great, but you better have good theology. Oh, I love just getting in worship, and I love opening up my heart and singing to the Lord, and I love the feelings that wash over me. Good. Do you know the character of the God who is affecting those feelings? It's meant to be holistic. When he says get rid of all the filth, he means that holistically. It's not just that he invites your whole being into worship. He also calls your whole being out of sin. Which means agreeing with the sermon here, but having a competing Google search tonight is contradictory. Worshiping here and then blasting your waiter or waitress at Boston Pizza later because they got your order off by 4%, something's missing in your faith. There's meant to be a wholeness and a robustness to what Jesus does in your entire whole being. It's back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 where, where Moses is giving the law and he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your strength. And Jesus comes along like thousands of years later and they're grilling him on all the little things that God expects of them. And Jesus quotes that verse. Now here's the thing. Let me boil everything in the Bible down to two things. Love the Lord your God, and he says the exact same thing. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your body, all your strength. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, let's not make this complicated. Let's keep this simple. God came to save all of you, and he wants all of you to respond on this great journey. But he does not believe that it happens in an instantaneous moment. At the end, when Jesus is about to leave and go be seated at the right hand of the Father, he says to the disciples, now here's the deal. I want you to go into all the world, scatter around, do incredible ministry. Let's define it by this. Baptizing and teaching the people everything that I've taught you. Like, you need to teach people. This is not they come to the altar and walk away mature. This is discipleship. 
This is walking beside people in the nitty-gritty of life, pouring yourself out into them. And he says a funny thing there. He says, teaching them to observe all that I taught you. I said to you last week, our Bibles, they're trying to be helpful, but the NLT translates observe into obey, and it releases the tension for you. The word is observe. And James has a Jewish audience in mind, and Jesus has a predominantly Jewish audience in mind. And this idea of observing carries in it for them the wholeness and oneness. How could we not hear and observe and then do the thing that God said for us? It's, it's integrated. Our culture loves, or at least is okay, being duplicit. That's why we can say, I believe in good health. I believe that eating carrots is better than McDonald's. I believe that exercise is good, and yet predominantly that's not a practice that universal humanity engages in. But for them, observing was like doing. Receiving it and hearing it led to obeying. That's why James is like, stop disconnecting those things. Don't hear something and then live contrary. He said, that's crazy. That's like going to a mirror, looking at yourself, walking away and forgetting what you look like. Like There's supposed to be a congruency to how we live. And it's our responsibility to teach people, disciple them, and pour into them to walk more and more like Jesus. Third thing that we see a theme in this passage is that James just believes and expects that Jesus' people know that doing leads to blessing. This is the point that I'm going to be the most misunderstood on. So if you're going to misunderstand me, lean in a little closer. There's a lot going on in this passage, but James believes that doing leads to blessing, but not the way we hear it. So James, writing to a Jewish audience, says he knows knowing the law is like knowing God. Do you remember the Ten Commandments story? Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments from God and he carves them on the stones and brings them down. There was something in the Jewish culture that, that to know the law was not the Ten Rules. It was more like the Ten Revelations of the heart and character of our God. He was revealing a bit of who he was by giving the law and what he said in the law. When you're surrounded by a polytheistic culture, gods are everywhere. They're all removed, far off, and distant. Nobody knows them. And here come these Jewish people who get this revelation of here's what our God is like and here's what he expects of us. They believe that receiving the law was a gift. Everyone else is wandering around in the dark trying to find their way to God. And our God shows up and says, here's the deal. I will make myself known. I'm not going to hide from you. I want you to find me. What a gift. And the third thing that James knew is that following the law for the Israelites and the Jewish people was the path to blessing. Like, it was built in that if you follow God's law, that leads to blessing. If you get out of the law, that leads to destruction. Here is the thing that we mess up in the church. The law is not bad. 
I cringe when people rail against the law and thank goodness for Jesus. The law is not bad. The law is beautiful. It's a revelatory gift from our Heavenly Father. The issue with the law is not its badness. It's our inability to do it. Come on. The Old Testament does not say, well, look at this outdated, antiquated system. That's not the point. The point is, this is beautiful, we just can't do it. So when you read page after page, you see people failing at trying to be good, which means the New Testament is not the antiquated thing per se, it's the full revelation of the law. When you see Jesus, that is the law in perfect humanity being walked out before us. So he's not coming to spit on it as much as to resolve the tension in it. You're still not helped yet until Jesus goes to the cross and goes to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit. Because it's one thing to have the law in writing form that you can't live up to. It's one thing to have the law in human form in Jesus that you can't live up to. It's only beautiful when you receive the Holy Spirit empowering you and enabling you to live the Jesus life. So here's the deal that might blow some of your minds. Looking at Jesus as an example is not meant to be aspirational. It's meant to be actual. I say that again. Looking at Jesus as our example is not meant to live in aspirational territory. Oh, wouldn't that be nice to be like Jesus, walking around, loving people, not judging your neighbor and Take, like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be something? Coming to James, like, hey man, can you imagine if I could control my anger and my mouth wouldn't get me in trouble every other day of the week? Like, wouldn't that be nice? But uh, too bad I'm me, and you know me. I'm real hot-headed. Oh, you know, I did the Enneagram test, and you know I'm this. I did Myers-Briggs, and I'm, I'm this, so what are you going to do? Just going to have to love me the way that I am. Nonsense. The Jesus life is not meant to be an aspirational tease. It's meant to be actually received. Not by white-knuckling it, not by powering up, not by going to seminars and going to church every Sunday, not by tithing money, not by any of those things. The Jesus life is meant to be actual and received through the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into us as Christians and as we are discipled and mentoring, mentored and walking our faith out, we learn to live like Jesus in Southwest Nova. Which means when James says, be slow to angry, we could say, because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I get to be slow to be angry. When he says be quick to listen, we should like, I I can do that in, in the Spirit. When he says purge the filth out of you, you don't have to make friends with your addiction. Like you get to punt your addiction out from what Jesus did on the cross, what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Are we tracking, church? Most Christians live like Jesus is out there, but we're down here. Eh. That's not how it's supposed to be. Now, for the blessing part, we think that God's up there like our Sunday school teacher if you grew up in church. And if you can do all the things your Sunday school teacher wanted you to do, God's like, 
like, way to go. I got a gold star for you. And if you collect five gold stars, you can pick a gift from the treasure chest. You just walk yourself over and pick any man of junk that we found at the dollar store. It's yours. Like, you memorize the Bible verses. You got the Beatitudes. Like, I am so proud of you. Get a treat. Get a, get a gift. And we still come to church like adults thinking, like, God, like, did you see? Like, roll the blessing out. Give me my allowance. Give me the thing. Like, I, 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 I danced. Now you cough up the gift. That's not what it says. It said, blessed is the man in obedience. Not blessed is the man for his obedience. See, we think God has rules and law to keep us from having fun. God is trying to lead you into life to the fullest. And the guidance he offers is to keep you out of destruction. And what you find out is, is in walking in obedience with your Heavenly Father through the power of the Spirit, the walking in freedom is the blessing. Are you tracking yet? The blessed life is the life that James is describing. Whole and holy. We love our spouses differently because of the grace of Jesus, and that is a blessing. We are not bound to keep searching the same things on our internet. We get to be free. That is the blessing the Father wants to give you. You can scroll Amazon and not put anything in your shopping cart. That is a blessing. That is the blessing the Father wants to give you. You can, church, please hear me. You can actually take every thought captive. Your mind is not your master. You can put your mind under the dominion of Jesus. This should be blowing all of said minds. So many Christians are living way beneath the life that Jesus calls us to. It is available, it is there, and it does not have to be aspirational. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I know the room's quiet, and I would be prone to preach harder because it's quiet. But Lord, I wonder if, if I know I did, I wonder if we're feeling a sense of conviction from realizing that we have missed some days or wasted some days living beneath our calling, where we traded your best for us and we lived in secondary. We lived way beneath what you had for us. And Lord, right now, if there's anybody feeling convicted as I have felt all this week, James cares so much about the small parts of our life because you care so much about the small parts of our life. God, you are not a God of guilt and condemnation. You are not pounding on people or beating people up today. When it's your conviction, we will feel the weight and then we will sense your invitation to walk in the newness of life. God, when I, when I read James, I do not see a list of to-dos. I see an invitation of what is possible through your Holy Spirit. That you are shaping a Christ-like person inside the shaping of a Christ-like community. And so Jesus, I pray for every person in this room today, would your grace pour out? For any Christian who is white-knuckling their walk with you, let them unclench. 
For anybody who's going to be tempted to perform their way to gold stars this week, throw that away and step into something so much more beautiful. We're about to sing a song that says that's the power. Jesus, you called us to this new life and you gifted us the power to walk in it. Whatever anxiety somebody's feeling in this room, there's power to live free. Anybody in this room who is addicted to spending and shopping, that somehow the things they have define their worth, there's power to be content and joy with nothing around us. Any addictions where people think that has, that has had the last word, there's power available to set people free from their addictions. Any relationships we think are dead and gone, they are over, there's no hope for them, there's power available to bring dead things back to life. So Jesus, in this room, quiet or not, would you pour out a fresh realization of the power that's available? Thank you for your goodness, thank you for your mercy, and thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.